Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for October 2014. I am writer-critic, hyphen happy 20th birthday to the film that changed cinema forever, Baby's Day Out. And with me as always is... <laughs> Hi there everybody, I'm writer-director-$5 hyphen hyphen milkshake, Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us this month is our very special guest... Uh, Hayley Inch, uh, writer-slash-film-programmer-slash... General Shameless Hoyden. Um, yeah, hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank Hoyden. you for being on. Now, Hayley, I, I know you listen to the show. Yes, indeed. So you might remember that about two years ago, Paul posited that every second David Fincher film was a classic. Seven Fight Club Zodiac social network. You know, it all fit, and because Girl with the Dragon Tattoo had just come out, that put a lot of pressure on his next film, which is this month's Gone Girl. Does this film continue the trend? I say yes, and with no one disagreeing with me, we move on to the next film, <laughs> which on, is... Hang well, on, what, what, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, well, first of all, I'm going to have to disprove Paul's theory. Oh, here we go. Because... I'm not much for David Fincher. Okay. I kind oh, of no. Zodiac is kind of the only one that I truly adore. And mm-hmm. while I appreciate so many of his other films, you know, I do find them very cold and she distancing. Hasn't all the way through seven. Shh. Whoa. Hush. No, I have. <laughs> I watched the second half. Okay. Has it seen the first half? <laughs> <laughs> You shouldn't confide these things to me, Hayley. I shouldn't confide them. I will reveal them on air. They get broadcast. See, I feel like this is just going to be my moment for all of my, like, dirty film secrets to just be laid out (laughs) in front of the internet, but never mind. Um, I I do tend to find his films very cold and distancing, and Gone Girl really wasn't any different, and kind of with the, yeah, added extra of really uncomfortable, you know overtones if you were a feminist or in any way triggering to misogynistic, you know, practices and what have you. But, um, you know, maybe I need to read the book. Maybe I'll feel better about it after I read the book. Maybe. I, I, I wouldn't say you need to read the book, but I'd be interested to hear your reaction mm. based on your reaction to the film. Um. So... And also, I, look, I, I adore the book. I think Gillian Flynn, who also adapted the screenplay from her own book, I think she's a whip-smart writer, and the book was superb, and I love her work in the film. I believe she's, now, she's one in a fast-growing group of hard-G Gillians. Oh, Gillian. Ooh. Yes, along with, uh, along with uh, Gillian Jacobs and Gillian Robespierre. There you, go. Yeah. there you go. Well, yeah, um, I might be uh, the third bear over here, because I'm somewhere <laughs> in between. I... I thought it was extremely entertaining as sort of a popcorn, modern film noir, post-fatal attraction type thing. It kind of works really well. I think it's smarter than that. But it does get increasingly more absurd as it goes on. And while this really appealed to me aesthetically, there's a certain grisly kill, which is straight out of a Jalo movie, <laughs> which I adored visually, but I thought this this has just pulled me right out of any reality this yeah, film was trying yeah. to create. Yeah, I, I, I found particularly increasingly in the second half of the film, you know, characters just do things where you're just kind of like, are you even a real person? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and while, while I, you know, there's also other parts I really appreciate the fact that, you know, that the film is so focused on, ex- on exploring a heavily feminine gendered sociopath and mm. the differences that that creates in what we expect out of a movie sociopath who mm. are you know generally always men going after female victims yeah. and i found that really really interesting um and and particularly um ben affleck's performance in juxtaposition to that essentially mm. being the traditional movie you know thriller victim sort yeah. of thing 
Yeah. I really loved his performance. I thought he was great. Really kind of controlled and beautifully uh, subtle. I loved that, or not loved, but I thought it was really interesting that the character is kind of, you know, I mean, how much do we want to say? Uh, like, yeah, there, there's some interest. I thought there was some really clever engagement with gender roles here. Mm. And, 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 and the fact that one character is kind of bristling against that. I thought that was a really interesting point. And, and but it's not also, necessarily something a man would have written. No, and I, and I think it was it's a really all great very insight. deliberate. I think there are, I mean, we've certainly seen films in which they've unknowingly stumbled, I won't name them, but they've unknowingly stumbled into the most horrific gender politics just because they don't really, you can mm. tell they're not yeah. really thinking it through. And I think the difference here is that it's so measured like Flynn knows exactly what she's doing and everything is there for a reason and she's definitely playing with traditional gender roles and twisting them in, in, in an incredibly entertaining yeah. way. So that's what I like about it. I like that it, it's a film that provokes questions but isn't doing it blindly. Like mm. I think yeah I think I agree with that. I think the film knows exactly what it's doing. I mean I've had more people come up and ask me what I think of this film than yeah. any film in the last two or three years. <laughs> Because I like, I, it just seems to be a, a film that people are really eager to talk about, mm. um, and that's got to be a good thing, right? Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's yeah, it's kind of the I kind of have the same feeling about that I did with Fight Club. You know, you remember when Fight Club came out, and then a whole heap of dude bros just decided it was real and a lifestyle to emulate and yeah. that sort of thing. Like the the satire, missing the complete point the, of the missing film. Missing the complete yeah. point of the film. Like the satire cleaved so close to the bone that it was almost in, indistinguishable from that it was critiquing. Mm. I don't feel like Gone Girl goes that far, but it definitely strays over that bridge mm. on occasion. Mm. Yeah, yeah, perhaps yeah. if you're a little less enlightened about these points, exactly, you may take exactly. it in the other direction. Like, like, you know, I basically say, you know, I know it's satire, you know it's satire, you know. The, the, the vast majority of the critics understand that satire. Do Joe and Jen public understand yeah. that it's satire? And our MRAs are up in their hands together watching <laughs> yeah. it. Which is, which is why I think, I'm not going to say ridiculousness of the ending, but what, how, how it sort of it takes the joke far enough so that I don't think anyone would be able to take certain mm. elements of it seriously. Mm. Uh, it's very hard to talk around that ending. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's also the, yeah, i got to say the last act is, I take that point on, but at the same time it was largely what pulled me out of the movie as well because mm. it just gets so absurd. But look, I, I, I do think it's worth a watch, but like Hayley, I do believe it does tread a very fine line... Yes. Not always graceful. Well, for, for me, I'm keeping every second film being a Fincher classic. That's keeping the tradition. Yeah, made. see, for me, yeah, record's broken. <laughs> uh, it's all done. Dang. Well, anyway, moving on to a film that is far more successful in uh, depicting a disintegrating <laughs> marriage. False majeure. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a, you must teach me the ways of the segue. Oh, no, right? That is fantastic. Segway. Proper segue. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> Those are alien. <laughs> yeah, and I've been sitting on that one, just going like, yeah, yeah. That's great. brilliant, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a really interesting double of, yeah, mm. Force Majeure, uh, which, which I should state, yeah. released by Charmel Films, of which my wife is the marketing manager at, so I do have to get that disclaimer out there. But yeah, this is, this is close to uh, one of my favourite films of the year, if not my favourite. It's certainly up there in the yeah. upper echelons. This, it, there are very few films that can emotionally destroy me, but it would still make me want to watch it again immediately, because it's so funny, 
that like it's not a comedy, like it's mm. it's, a, it's a drama, but it's really funny in a very black Scandinavian See, I, way. I came in the opposite way. I felt mm. it was a comedy that is very very serious at times. <laughs> yeah. Either way works. Yeah. Yeah. Either way works. It is it is extraordinarily adept at just wrenching the biggest gut laughs that you will probably have in a cinema this year, and then the next second just like striking you with just how black and it's almost like this this nihilistic blackness mm. of of male and female relations and marriages and what that's meant to mean and particularly you know can you ever really know a person do you know the person lying next to you mm. and this film suggests that well no until certain events happen you don't know that's who interesting is next to you. you say who is uh, yeah. do you know the person next to you because yeah. certainly for a lot of guys you know mm. it's it's what would i do that's the yes. question yeah I found the film really interesting on notions of masculinity mm. as well and yep. what we expect from masculinity and what is a fair expectation and an unfair expectation mm. and femininity as well. And I found that a really interesting interplay. Uh, could, could I just yeah. ju- jump in with the, the premise of the film? Because mm. uh, yes. I know we don't always like mention the premise of the mm. film when we're talking about them, but this one, I've not told this to anyone without them going, oh my God, I have to see that, regardless yeah. of who they are. Oh, or, yeah, yeah the, the idea of... The avalanche is coming. They think it's fine. The father is saying, no, 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 it's fine. And when it looks like it's going to be dangerous, his instinct is to grab his phone and run, leaving his family there. It's all fine. He has to go back to them. And then the the rest of the film is them dealing with the fact that he ran off. Yes, this is definitely not a spoiler. It happens in the first five minutes. Absolutely. It's the the inciting incident of the film. uh, And the mother stays and really protects the kids, like kind of does a, a mother hen thing. It's basically um, that episode of Seinfeld, The Fire, with George Costanza yes. as, as as a comedy drama. I, all, I, I, I almost photoshopped that image onto the force majeure poster of George running out of it. I very nearly did that. Uh, yeah, look, I, I really, I absolutely loved the first two mm. acts. I've got to say, I felt the third act fumbled it a little bit. I just sort of felt it was kind of letting the characters off to some certain extent. I'm still actually, though, trying to work out, for me, in my own head, what that third act means in relation to everything else. Could, it, could I say, without, without spoiling mm. what I think that is, because I was... Often when I'm watching a film and I think, oh, this would be the perfect place for it to end, if it doesn't end there... I find it hard to, to accept. Yes. Yeah, but I, I had that. that. I said, oh, this is where it should end. Come on, cut, cut to the credits. And it kept going. And there were all these coders afterwards. But I real, like as they were going, I realized that the point of them was uh, that the, the delicate shifting balance of power that had been going mm. on throughout the film was, you know, the final screw was turned yeah. in those last moments where... You know, where, it's just, it's on a knife's edge. Mm. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's basically where the emotional avalanche of the film happens, like right mm. at the end. And for that, that was just the beautiful cap off moment for me. Like a lot of films yeah. lose me in, at, at the end, you mm. know, a lot of films don't know how to end. This just ends things just so perfectly. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Lee. This is, this is one of the films of the year. Excellent. Now, Obvious Child, mm-hmm. which is uh, this month's abortion comedy. Um, <laughs> Uh, I assume we get one every every month. The uh, I just want to say Jenny Slate and Gabby Hoffman do not play sisters. That is my only complaint about the film because <laughs> earlier this year when I watched Parks and Rec for the first time and saw Jenny Slate in that, 
And at the same time, uh, Gabby Hoffman was in Girls. At the time, I thought, oh my God, they should play sisters in something. Yeah. I was so excited that they were in this film together and then realised they were just playing best friends. But that's the only problem I have with this film. Sure. Because it is so funny and it feels... There's this real energy to it. Like, it feels like this bursting forth of... Um, uh, another another Gillian is it Gillian or Gillian? It's Gillian. Yeah, this no, is another, she's another Gillian. Oh my God. Gillian Robespierre's Twitter handle is actually something like Hard G. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Well, this is yeah her first feature, and it feels like such a there's something there's a really really weird word I want to use here, mm-hmm. and it's nourishing. You know when you haven't had uh, when something has been missing from your diet. And when I say diet, that could be food. It could be entertainment. It could be whatever. And you suddenly get that and you go, Oh God, I've been missing this. And that's what it felt like to me. Like, Oh, I need this voice in my cinema. Wow. I think you liked it a lot more than I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did sort of see, observe uh, people falling over themselves for this film. And I wasn't as jazzed. I enjoyed it. I liked the way that she deconstructs the romantic comedy and kind of turns it on its head. I think she's a really engaging personality. The cast are terrific. It's far too scatological for me. There's just far too many poo and bum and fart jokes, and it's just like, uh, no, I just don't... I'm just not that amused by that sort of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I just didn't... I I found the film thematically on point, but not necessarily comedically on point at all times. But I, I'm saying I'm saying that like a real hater. I did actually enjoy it. I got through to the end. I was like, yeah, no, that, that's cool. It's a cute little movie. I, I, I enjoyed it. And it's great to have that that voice and that story and, you know, the female-driven comedy about this particular um, subject is, is a really great thing to have. And I'm so glad it's out there. And I'm so glad these guys did it. Mm. I, I just don't think its sense of humour is necessarily my sense of humour. Sure. But otherwise, yeah, otherwise I, I totally admire it. Uh, we're going to talk whiplash. All right. I think we need to acknowledge what's about to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I've never done this, have I? No, you've no. never done it. This is bizarre. Okay. Basically, I really want to see this film, and I've been hearing nothing but raves, and I just need to get up and leave the room where you guys talk about it, because I, I, I want to go in. Like, I'm starting to feel like I'm becoming subject to the mm. raves of this film, and sure. I need to shut myself off from it. So, so see okay. you next segment. See you next segment. <laughs> How about it, peeps? Thank Bye, you. Paul. <laughs> there he is. So, Haley, whiplash yes. is... Okay, what do you really think about Paul? <laughs> He's terrible. He's terrible. terrible. God. He's oh. <laughs> only and... seen whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but no, seriously. But he's um, right, though, because everyone's been yeah. raving about it, and I almost... Mm. I was a little suspicious going in, because yeah. there have been so many raves. Yeah. That I was like, come on, what? Is, this is a drumming movie. How good can it? Yeah, I mean, exactly. not, not the drumming movies yeah. can't be good, but what's the deal? Yeah, it was one of those films that, yeah, was massively, massively recommended to me before I even got into the cinema. Yeah. And I was sitting there just going like, oh, I just, I just, I just don't know, you know, rave out of Sundance. They can go either way, yeah. you know, but... In in this case, um, you know, rarely, um, all of the praise I think is for the most part warranted. Mm. It's an extraordinarily entertaining film. It yeah. is, it, and 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 not only is it entertaining, but it has a core to it which I think is really important in terms of the type of film it is. Like it is an it is essentially an inspirational teacher movie, mm. but what it does with that is kind of ask the questions that we ordinarily don't ask of that genre, like how far is pushing a student too far? Mm. You know, how far is um, unconventional teaching methods actually 
actually abuse. Yeah. And it, you know, and the film actually takes it to extremes and is actually very masterful in, you know, it never pushes it so far that you don't believe that this is what these kids are going to do in mm. order to get approval of a teacher who is essentially, you know, a couple of steps from a psychopath. Yeah. So, and this is a first-time filmmaker, a, uh, or first-time feature filmmaker. Yeah, directorial debut yeah. of Damien Chazelle, or mm. possibly pronounced Gillian Chazelle at this point. Um <laughs> He he wrote one of my favorite other favorite films of the year, mm. Grand Piano, oh. and this is he's written and directed this one. Mm. Um, so he really likes pushing musicians to do. Oh yeah, but yeah, no, I, yeah, he's he's incredible. The confidence mm. that he displays in this film, um, I yeah, I think it's ruined ruined the genre of uh, of inspirational feature movies forever. <laughs> and I mean that in which the best I, way possible. Which I'm totally okay with because yeah. I feel like these are the sort of questions we should have been asking all along. You know exactly. You know, also I, I still love Dead Poet Society and School of Rock, but oh. it's time that yeah. uh, the genre was put to bed, and this is the film to do it. I I, I, I don't mm. know. I think that. You know, you've got some films which are uh, character studies and mm. others are exercises in intention and others mm. are about procedure, like people yeah. are procedurals, and others are about exploring an idea. Mm. And I think a film can be successful if it does one of those things yeah. right. And what's extraordinary about Whiplash is it doesn't just do them all right, it excels mm. at all of them. It really, really does. And, of course, you know, it's it's kind of hard to talk, talk about the film without alluding to the ending, which mm. is, you know... It, it seems to be the part of the film that is affecting people the most. And I must admit, you know, it, it is extraordinarily well done. The camera work, the choreography, the actors' performances all just kind of line up in mm. this perfect domino of, of increasing tensions. But I must admit, um, I'd, I walked away from the film enormously unsettled yeah. in a good way. But, yeah, I found talking to other people after the film, you know, a lot of people seem to come out of it feeling uplifted and positive. And I'm kind of a little bit like, oh, but, but... Mm. But well, I like the, I actually compare it a lot to The Incredibles, where mm. I'm not a hundred percent sure I agree with the message it's putting out. <gasps> yeah. But I don't care because I I don't mind if a film has a message I don't agree with, as long as it's mm. got a message and it's trying to mm. explore that. And the fact that it does this is is very uh, mm. very admirable. Yeah. I think. Anyway, should we go? See get, it. <laughs> should we go get Paul? I think we should. Maybe, let's just leave him. We'll just leave him there. No, it's cool. <laughs> So, in a long-awaited return of our mini hyphenate segment, I feel like we need some sort of fanfare. We do. Really should be. We do. Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of music. Really you know? right. Or at least, Maybe. like you know, like the hell is for hyphenates filmmaker of the month. I feel like we need something. We'll work on that for the next. Yeah, we, will. Yeah. we will. Um <laughs> But it's been a while since we've done one because we've had a lot of specialist kind of you know filmmakers and you know want to you know mm. ask some questions about their careers and stuff. And frankly, we're not at all interested in Haley's career. No, it's life. very boring. <laughs> Um, be no interest to your listeners at all. Yeah. <laughs> I kid because I love. Um, but the man we're looking at, or the, the filmmaker we're looking at this um, uh, this month, is a revered figure in the history of comedy filmmaking. It's fair to say, and he uh, f- was never very prolific. His films seem to take longer and longer to make for reasons that we'll, we'll get to. But uh, that man is none other than French uh, maestro Jacques Tati. 
Yes, the uh, the maker of uh, five feature films and a lot of shorts and one telly movie. We sort of were. Sort it's of interesting str- you say a lot of shorts because he didn't make that many. No, well, he, he directed two. Had, did in like, a bunch, yeah. but only directed the, a couple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but he still Three. he still did a, a lot. They still feel like Tutty films, even though he didn't direct mm. them. But he. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's done a lot of work, so he's just sort of scraping through uh, out yeah. on, on a technical. He's an absolute maximum mini hyphenate. We've got yeah. a couple of those on the roster. Yeah, so um. but it, it's great to talk about him because he's he's a really fascinating filmmaker and one that I actually came to quite late in life because you know I, I worship at the altars of uh, Chaplin and Keaton and Tati was never sort of on my radar uh, growing up and and came to him quite recently and I'm. I'm and it took me a little bit to sort of get one over. I think it was the the short uh, School for Postman, which he adapted into Jour de Fête, which I love. Like, I think that short is one of his best films. And yeah, but he, of course he's known for Monsieur Hulot from, you know, Monsieur yeah. Hulot's Holiday, Mon Oncle, uh, Playtime and Traffic. Mm. That's his, ca- that's his little tramp. Canon. Yes. Now, I felt like the most interesting thing about Tati's career was... It is, unlike a lot of, you know, because we, we throw around the auteur theory and talk about how, you know, we, we can see filmmakers developing and grappling with themes or one theme from film to film. Tati is one of the clearest examples of A to B to C to D. You can see his obsessions and his ambition grow from film to film. Mm. From his first film, uh, first feature film, as you say, adapted from the, sh- the short School for Postman, Joie de Fate, which is otherwise is known as The Big Day. And it feels very much like a short elongated to feature length. Um, mm. I watched the original hour and 27-minute version, and it felt 20 minutes too long. Mm. Having said that, there are some marvellous sequences in it. Oh, they really it, are. Yeah. It, it introduces... Because <laughs> Tati obviously had a background in mime and was quite quite a famous um, uh, mime artist mm. and, and theatrical performer in, in um, France before he started his film career. And he'd been making short films since the 30s, and Joie de Fate was made in 1949. So he'd been at this for a long time. Mm. But, but yeah, only directing very occasionally. I think he directed two shorts in those 15 years. And so, yeah, you've got these marvellous comic sequences kind of bloated in this non-story about the you know Americans come to town and show him this bizarre kind of piss-taking film about how the postmen are so much better in the US. Yeah. And then he, he's hell-bent on matching them for speed and efficiency for this whole day. It's a weird and, premise to hang a feature on. It is. <laughs> and, they just, and basically the village just mock him, lovingly mock him all day. Yeah. And it's kind of sweet, but yeah, it, it's, it's incredibly bloated. And then you get to his second film, Monsieur, uh, Monsieur Ve- Hulot's Holiday. Mr. Hulot's yeah. Holiday, or mm-hmm. Le Vacancy du Monsieur Hulot. <laughs> French people are probably laughing their asses off right now. Which, for me, personally, is his masterpiece. I will always go the joke machine when, when evaluating uh, great comics careers. Like, I'm, give me Duck Soup over Night at the Opera. Give me Take the Money and Run over Sleeper. Give me Monty Python and the Holy Grail over Life of Brian. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm very much on that. When a, when a genius is in full command of a joke machine, there is nothing better in terms of comedy. So usually I'm on board with that, and I think, but I think looking at him as a director, like watching all these films... And I, my favourite was Playtime. Oh, wow. Oh, Lee, you're going to oh, be no. so disappointed oh, in me. Is that that? The I one. fell asleep in Playtime wow. attempting to watch it three times. Whoa. 
Yeah. yeah okay. I'm on my own on this one. You're on your own on that one, I'm afraid, because I'm with Paul. I think Monsieur um, Hulot's Holiday is just one of those perfect films where everything is set up mm. just to roll off each other like water off a duck's back onto another duck's back onto another <laughs> duck, and you're pissing yourself laughing at the same time. And Mon Oncle is actually, you know, quite close behind that. Yeah. I yeah. think it's just... They're beautifully structured and they're just so clever and they want to make you laugh. Mm. They that that, yeah. that is what they are there to do. Yep. You know, and I feel like with playtime, like you do see that shift and like it's starting in Mononcle. You can see the beginnings of it. Playtime is very much I can see why filmmakers love it yep. because it's about structure, it's about the look of things, it's about evoking a particular time and place that was basically disappearing before before the filmmaker's eyes and mm. he kind of just wanted to show that switch and what modernism was doing Absolutely. To, to France. Do you know how and... much I want to see his mm. take on social media and mobile phones? <laughs> I want to bring him back to make yeah. a film about mm. the current... Because well, the things he was afraid of back in the, in the mm. 60s, mm. are things that we reminisce about yeah. now. But I th- look, I think you're right. Like, I mean, I, I adore Holiday and, and Mon Oncle. Like, mm. I think they're hilarious. Mm. And I think, yeah, his strongest films are the ones with Hulot, like mm. that character. Mm. Yeah. But, but also, like, the, the paint can, like, the way he lets a joke percolate. I think as a comedian, he's... More, you know, I said I love uh, Chaplin and Keaton, who he obviously mm. adored. I mean, he his one request when he went to America for the Oscars was he wanted to meet, mm. um, you know, Keaton and Stan yeah. Laurel and some others. And and uh, Buster Keaton actually said uh, Tati's work had tr- carried on the true t- tradition of silent cinema, mm. which can you imagine yeah. hearing yeah. that from your hero? But I think the the big difference is that uh, Keaton and Chaplin were everything was sort of in service of their physical comedy. Mm. And with Tati, most of the comedy comes from the filmmaking, like the, yeah. the way he lets the paint mm. can drift out and then drift back in. And, or, or the way um, in, uh, in uh, Jeu de Fate, the fly at the beginning and you pan across and the fly gets someone else. And the, you know, that's a very gentle uh, joke that relies entirely on the movement of the camera. This plays into my thing. I, found, I, I was noticing with the way he would build a joke in Monsieur Los Holiday and then not pay it off and fade in another direction mm. and increasingly with his films he started to feel more less akin to Chaplin and Keaton and more akin to Hitchcock I actually yeah. found he felt like a comedy Hitchcock to me and I totally see that like playtime is like it could be his re-window it could mm. be his you know everything's about the location everything's oh. about formal experimentation it's funny you should say that because that shot of the building uh, uh, that, that you know looming shot of the building mm. is identical almost to uh, the one at the beginning of North by Northwest that the credits go over. Yes, yeah. And that was, you know, I'd love to see a shot-by-shot comparison because, yeah, I know I t- I'm totally on board with that. Uh, and, and that's the thing. with And Mononc- Mononc is almost the, the perfect balance between Tati before and after because he's, he's becoming more interested in critiquing the bourgeois, critiquing our rush to technology, mm. critiquing our loss of humanity, all that sort of stuff. But he's still interested in making people laugh. Mm-hmm. I, feel, I felt with Playtime he becomes less interested in comedy yeah. and becomes yeah. more interested in these critiques and setting these giant frames up and just letting stuff happen in them and you being kind of overwhelmed by everything that's going on and he's trying becomes something more satirical formally mm. audacious yeah. i mean it's satire but a lot of times i don't know there was a lot of times i was looking at the frames like there's a lot happening but there's nothing happening mm. yeah Which I and whether that's like. a comment in itself yeah mm. but 
it's not as entertaining as those previous films. No, and definitely then, not. And then after that, because Playtime was a film that at the time was the most expensive film ever made in France. I can yeah. see that, yeah. Um, he built an entire mini city outside of Paris. And they were called, yeah. the press were calling it Tartiville. Like that building, yeah. that everything, that's all constructed for the movie. And it bombed. Yeah. It's it, a, he, he, he was in debt for 10 years afterwards. And had to sell yeah. like his wow. earlier films off and yeah. things like that. Yeah, totally. And by the time we get to traffic, mm. you do mm. feel it's the work of a bowed man. Like it's, it's a man caught between what he wants to do and what he's having to do. Yeah. Like yeah. it's made for Dutch TV, but it got a theatrical release overseas. It's him bringing back Hulot, and he didn't like perpetuating that Hulot character. He was mm. kind of ready to give it. That's why yeah. in playtime often he's kind of pushed yeah. to the background. Yeah, he's, because... he's almost a periphery character in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's what he wanted. He wanted to retire Hulot and then having to bring him back for Parade. And, and yet... There's, he doesn't I mean, really for, bring for, for, not, It's not parade. Oh, having, traffic, to, yeah. having to bring it back for traffic. It seems really half-hearted. And, and mm. it is, he's still caught between that constructing funny sequences. Because, I mean, look, let's face it. He could have just made films like Mr. Hullo's Holiday Forever. Yeah. yeah. He could have just dined on that and that could have been his career. But as we see those building blocks, he clearly didn't want to go that way. And, and traffic feels a little bit like a sad defeat. It has its moments. It's mm. perfectly fine. Yeah. But it feels I, I like defeated. it quite a lot. I think, I think there's certainly a bell curve to his films, mm. you know, in, in, in my opinion, with those, the middle ones being the, the best. But, and, and, yeah, Parade is... It does feel like somebody trying to recapture something that's lost. Yeah. It's got but its it, moments. From what I've heard of Parade, it feels like a bit of a, bit of a retirement. Kind of, it is a little really? bit, which is past, present, future. Interesting because you know, he was going to make a film. He was planning a film called Confusion, which was about society's infatuation with TV uh-huh. and advertising. Continuing uh-huh. this theme, he was going to kill Hulo off in that film, mm. oh, which wow. would have been amazing. Or, or terrible. <laughs> or terrible. <laughs> Not funny. Oh, no. <laughs> well, yeah, um, it certainly wouldn't have been funny, but there, yeah. there was that film, and there was the script he wrote, The Illusionist. <gasps> mm. Which was made into the beautiful um, Sylvain Chomet film exactly, in 2010. Exactly, yeah. yeah. animated film that Chomet, uh, the, the director of Triplets of Belleville, directed, which uh, was actually about uh, Tati's daughter, Sophie or his daughter Helga. There's some debate, depending on who you ask. Because but, Helga was an illegitimate daughter from a previous relationship and someone he hadn't acknowledged for many, many years. Yeah. And there's all that there is slight, stuff. I think there's slightly more evidence to suggest it was about his daughter Sophie, you know, quote-unquote legitimate, and how he kept having to leave her to make films. Yeah. And he felt guilty about that. But either way, it's sort of... It's, it's, it's beautiful, but a little devastating. And it's meant to... It was originally... It was um, film number four or something. Like, I think it was meant to come in between Mononc and, and Playtime. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. And it feels weird because I think The Illusionist feels like a perfect postscript. Mm. It really does, yeah. To Taki, particularly if you watch him and then you watch the way that kind of... He was a little bit broken by Playtime and then come around to Traffic and then you've got this last thing, you know, the, the, the messages that come through in The Illusionist mm. about how mm. we've lost all our magic and how we've, you know, it feels like a perfect full stop. Yeah. Also, what's interesting is not just who influenced him, like Chaplin, Keaton and W.C. Fields, but who he influenced. And, you know, you've got the obvious, which is Mr. Bean. And you can see a lot of Wes Anderson in there. But mm. David Lynch cites yep. him. As really? an influence. Yeah, Lynch adores him. So mm. I think, yeah, that, uh, you know, as influential as he is a com- as a comedian, mm. the fact that he's so influential as a filmmaker is, is why, you know, I, f- I found him such an interesting subject. Yeah. From only five pictures. Yeah. yeah.
All right, Haley. please tell us whom have you picked for your... Helen's for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. I have chosen Guy Madden. Guy Madden. Guy Madden. Guy Madden. Yes. Amazing. We're, Canadian. We're, yes. We, we're at the meat and business of things, kids. You the know? meat and business. I, I, you know, I'm totally fine if you've all just skipped ahead to this. <laughs> this is the main event. That, that is true. We yeah. can't deny that. <laughs> and being so ridiculously Canadian as he is, I'm always tempted to call him so Guy Madon, <laughs> but he's not French. But no, he's, he's not. He's, he's from Winnipeg, from Icelandic stock. Mm. Yeah. Boy, is he from Winnipeg. I love, <laughs> I've, I've said before, I love it when filmmakers are so closely associated with a particular place, and I love that Madden is so Winnipeg, not just Canadian. Yep. Winnipeg. 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 Exactly. <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue. It just sounds cinematic. Yeah, but anyway, I, I, I think if you were starting with, with Madden, having not been exposed to him before, I feel like in order to understand his cinema, you kind of have to un- understand that cinema is a haunted medium for him. It is a vessel absolutely teeming with ghosts and dreams and anything that kind of just, you know, scratches up the dust of the past and, like, throws it back into your face, you know, preferably, you know, in 16mm, you know, with a laugh. So <laughs> Even um, Super 8. Even Super 8. He's, he's done everything. He's done Super 8, he's done 16mm, he's done 35mm, and even digital with his most recent film. So, yeah. yeah. So, he's, he's a man of many unique. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I actually, uh, this, this is quite rare, rare where there is actually video footage of the when I first was introduced to Guy Mad, not personally, but as, <laughs> as a filmmaker. Uh, we, we did it on Bazura. I'll actually mm. post a link. I'm, I'll, I'll pop it on the blog. Yeah of Shannon introducing me on Bazura to his favourite short, which is The Heart of the World. <gasps> and then I saw Brand Upon the Brain afterwards, <laughs> and between those two, we just completely won over, because, you know, he's a guy who makes... It's kind of appropriate that we're doing Tati, this wasn't planned, but Tati mm. and Madden on the same, because they both feel like silent cinema continuing, the next generation. Mm. They really do, And yeah. he feels like we've slipped into a parallel universe where, like, the MTV generation is still making silent films. It's this fast <laughs> cutting, and he still uses sound, but the frenetic en- energy and, you know, editing. Mm. And he's the only one doing that, as far as I can see. Yeah, I- it's a cinema where he's clearly inspired by silent cinema, and early cinema as well, like, you know, he's interested in Technicolor and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And he's making s- silent films that never could have been made at the time. Mm, exactly. And he's making something entirely new with yeah. those techniques because he's clearly taught himself, you know, as, as, as much as you can how to make a silent film as if you were making it in, like, 1915 or whatever. Mm. And But he's deliberately repurposing it in making it something that's very, very personal and also very modern at the same time. There's always two questions I ask myself when watching Madden films. One is, what the fuck is this guy on? And the other one is, how is he doing this? Like, there's so much of his films, I can't work out what, like, what makes you cut there? What makes you repeat that? What, what make, how do you, how are you shooting that? How are you getting that effect? How are you, like, I'm just constantly mm. asking questions about, like, and I, I did see a documentary on him several years ago, and um, it's a little fading in my head now. But I'd just love to actually break down his process. He doesn't make films like anyone else. No, he, he really doesn't. And there are documentaries that you could watch, and he does work in miniature a lot. He built sets in warehouses, and apparently the uh, Winnipeg Arts Commission are very, very accommodating for artists who want to make films in Winnipeg. And, yes, apparently there's, like, a whole 
section of warehouses where he just kind of sets up shop and isn't yeah. there one where he brought in kids over summer or something like disenfranchised kids or something oh, to build probably. the sets yeah. for it? I think it was for the uh, Twilight of the Ice Nymphs. Yeah, there's very few filmmakers to which the word unique can be used, but Madden is one. Like it's just oh yeah, there the, you will not see anything like this guy's film. Yeah, you you, you can see what has has contributed to his filmmaking, yep. but apart from that, it's just like he is just completely out there and mm. completely extraordinary like like uh, almost like lee my very first madden film was brand upon the brain mm-hmm. yes thank you to sage walton at uh university of melbourne for introducing <laughs> me to that one um and it was yeah i was quite late on in my film degree at that mm-hmm. point and very jaded as as film students tend to be and just kind of like oh no i've seen everything you can't surprise me anymore and i spent that entire film basically clutching my face just yes. going this is extraordinary. I did not realise that films like this could actually still be made. Yeah. And and not only you could still make films like this, but then you could then extrapolate them out into these bizarre, hyper-fantastic dreams of, you know, the subconscious and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Do we perhaps want to to, to go chronologically through the films? Because I enjoy chronologically. Yeah, let's do that. Let's uh, start with his uh, his inaugural short film. This is what surprised me. For someone who works so extensively in the short film mm. medium, I thought he would have made 20 short films before he made a feature. But no, he, just, just the, the one. one short, The Dead Father, which is like half an hour long. And, mm. and then after that was into features. But The Dead but, Father but immediately sets up his style. It really yeah, does. It's, right from the get-go. Yeah. It, Oh, sorry, just, I just want to say with the shorts, he's made... I, I think he's probably more prolific as a short filmmaker yep. than a feature filmmaker, yep. and that he continued to make shorts in between the film. Mm. Uh, the and features. even now, I think yeah. his last even, couple of projects are shorts. Yeah, yeah and, and that's that's quite uncommon with a lot of directors. They mm. usually kind of leave the shorts behind, but he seems really invested He's in really keen. He's also far more keen these days on art installations, and a lot of his more mm. recent films have actually been bought, born out of him creating art installations. So he kind of, yeah, bridges that gap between film and art yeah yeah but yeah no his his first feature film after the dead father was tales of the gimli tales from the gimli hospital it's this really interesting story of male rivalry essentially (laughs) and he he has said in interviews he at the time of making the film he'd had a couple of instances where he had been you know a a love rival (laughs) and he wanted to explore the idea of you know in these sort of situations, the object of your mutual desire just ends up disappearing and you both don't end up caring about it or anything like that. And you end up in this bizarre, quasi, you know, emotional, homoerotic relationship with your rival. And, you know, and and, and man throughout his work, you know, as a nominally heterosexual man... He's not afraid to talk about, you know, yes, these are the gay thoughts that I've had. Look, here's a lot of wangs. Um, <laughs> he does not shy away from the cock. He does not shy away so from the cock So much male nudity in these yeah, films. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And, and overt homoeroticism. <laughs> yeah. He did and... make a short called Sissy Boy Slap Party. Which, <laughs> he's not shying away from Which that. is amazing. <laughs> I recommend you check that out. Um, but it's interesting because, mm. you know, you see a lot. Of, there's a lot of female nudity in his films as well. And he treats male and female nudity equally casually which I love. Really does, Mm. yeah. Um, Yeah, there's no inordinate focus on one or the other. It's Mm. just, yeah, it's really beautifully done. It's the way most filmmakers should probably operate. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of the wonderful thing about him, that even though he is couched in 
you know, adapting these kind of stories that, you know, from silent cinema that are very dated and often very gendered, he seems to be very interested in deconstructing that Mm. and kind of going, why was this the way they used to tell stories? Mm. Why was this the way they used to present men and women? And how is that awkward and problematic for us to watch? And we should explore that. I noticed with Gimli Hospital, he also immediately starts a trend that seems to run through his feature work. Which is he tends to, most of the films he makes tend to be inspired by a real incident mm. or real mythology around yeah. somewhere in Winnipeg or Canada or... Or in uh, this case, Manitoba. Yes. Yeah. And, and I find that really interesting for stuff as, and, and it's this whole kind of thing of dream memory, dream fantasia, you know, film is, you know, is kind of memory filtered through fantasy, filtered mm. through truth, filtered through delirium, mm. Mm. which I find like this... Archangel, um, my Winnipeg, of course, was the mm. most overt example. Yeah, all seem to kind of spring from some sort of historical uh, event. Yes, I believe it's based on stories of Bolshevik fighters uh, in like 1919. Yeah, um, who never stopped fighting after World War One. Yes, they, sort of... they basically just kept going because, of course, the Bolshevik Revolution had occurred, and it was just it was just one big long continuing war when you were Russian. Yeah. So, <laughs> and his his kind of intimation is that. You know, the World War One ended. Nobody told these people. Mm. Yeah. It's I such a great film. Really love, love this adventure. film. Yeah, it's something. It, again, it establishes. Like I like Gimli Hospital a lot, mm. and it's full of such evocative, that bizarre, almost quasi horror film imagery. Mm. And then Archangel just opens that up again, and you've got this wonderful love quadrang pentangle. Mm. Like so many, like it's that sort of classic. She loves him. He loves someone else. That, uh, that uh, someone else loves someone else, and that someone else loves someone else. And that person loves the one, you know, mm. it's a love circle, essentially, mm. involving loss of memory and... and um, I love the glee cow- which he introduces amnesia. It's like... Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I actually want to talk about amnesia in connection with Careful, which is the film mm. that he made after Archangel. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, amnesia is something that he... It, it's another one of those continuing themes that just keeps happening. And it seems like within, you know, Madden films, whenever a character appears to have suffered some kind of significant trauma, you know, amnesia just sets in. And you know, and and the amnesia often sets in before the events of the film even occur. So you're mm. introduced to characters who you know don't remember that they're being married to certain people, or <laughs> yes. don't remember that they had a child that died, and yeah. you know all of these sort of things. And and it's like an expression how we long to forget the traumatic things that happened to us, but you know when we do, you know, within Madden's world, you know that loss can only lead to further pain, and not only for us but everyone connected to us. Like it always seems like any any anyone who is connected to someone who has a form of amnesia, you know, in Madden's films, you know, tragedy is just only around the yeah. corner. Yeah. yeah. The, the other shoe is going to drop from pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. Careful is much more of a melodramatic kind of structure as yeah. well, which I didn't respond to as much as, as the mm. first two films. And is careful in color as well? Careful is, is in tints? color. It's tinted. Yeah. It's tints. And then, and then the next film, Twilight, the next one, Twilight, Twilight of the Ice Nymphs. Nymphs. That is, is color. That is, is color. That is color. Yeah. It's, it's very much mimicking. Yes. Your classical technicolor style. Yeah. Film. yeah. Madden was very dissatisfied with Twilight. Um, it was the first film he had that had a very significant budget of 
$1.5 million, mm. whereas most of his other films post and often subsequently were made, have been made for around like 40000 50000 you know. Yeah, or even half less. a million. Or, or even, yeah, no, yeah. you know, but, very, very cheap films in, in a way, but particularly considering, you know, how they look. They yeah. look astounding. Because yeah. such um, levels and layers to what's going on on screen. You're like, yeah. how is he getting all this for these I, I love seeing prices. him shoot. He just has a bunch of people with cameras and everyone shoots little bits here and there and mm. it's just... It, it looks so measured when you see the final version. Yeah. Like he's put so much mm. thought into it, which obviously he has, but that every shot is so carefully constructed. But there's a lot of... There seems to be what little behind-the-scenes stuff I've seen. There's a, there's a great energy yeah. in there where it's just like, everyone shoot stuff. <laughs> <laughs> just get in there. Quickly, get everyone's just running around 20 million cameras. And it happens too. You kind of like look at the credits of a lot of films and you notice that he will often just give cameras on to other actors. Yeah. Just go, you're not in this scene, film this, you know? And so, yeah, the, 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 cameraman, the, the, the camera person credits are often quite quite extensive. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so he, he was. And just, famous actors as well. Famous in this actors film. as well. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone who was in the saddest music in the world at some point filmed something. So, yeah, right. Yeah. After Twilight of the Ice Nymphs, which was unfortunately, yeah, he, he was dissatisfied with it. You know, he mm. felt like the investors were interfering with his creative vision and mm. that sort of thing. Is you there, know. A, do you know if there's a reason why the lead actor was revoiced? Was that a choice? It, uh, like, a, like a creative choice or was it a... It, it, it was a choice made. Like there's there's um, conflicting stories about whether it was Madden himself who decided it or whether it was the investors that decided it. Right. But, um, but it yes, was through a dissatisfaction. It was through a dissatisfaction and that, yes, that, that actor was was indeed so dissatisfied himself that he asked for his name to be removed from the credits. Wow. So, yeah, so you can kind of understand why Madden then didn't make another, you know, feature film for about five years yeah. and, you know, just kind of, you know, went back to, you know, teaching film in, in Winnipeg and, mm. and doing various art projects here and there. And lots of shorts. But, uh, and, and lots that, of shorts. Yeah, and, that and, was the period. Yeah, that, that was the period. Yeah. And I think before we talk about the next feature film, we really do have to discuss The Heart of the World, yeah. <laughs> which is the magnificent short that he made uh, on commission for the Toronto International Film Festival in 2000. And he basically took this commission literally in terms of he essentially makes this film, which is a propaganda film for cinema. And it is sort of one of those films where I'm just kind of like, I just insist everyone watch it. Mm. It's just it's just one of those beautiful things where if you were a film fan and you're sitting there in the dark and you're seeing this, you know, these beautiful images on screen, which culminates in Madden essentially suggesting that, you know, the only thing to cure the world's sick heart is to replace it with cinema, which is the new pure heart of the world. I mean, that just kills me. Just throw me on the ground. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Yeah, no, it is an extraordinary film. It's six minutes and it's one of his most Uh, significant works. And and it's quite interesting because apparently um, TIFF got a lot of different Canadian filmmakers mm. like Atom McGoyan and um, Cronenberg, Cronenberg make all these little shorts that they were going to play before before feature films. And apparently Madden had got wind that, you know, all of the other directors were being very, like, measured and doing all these long takes and things. And he was like, oh, okay, I'm going to put a hundred cuts in a minute. <laughs> and so this, this 
short just has this energy that just just pounds into you. It's it's really thing. relentless. His cutting is almost Baz Luhrmann esque. It yeah. really is. Well, like it's yeah. kind of it's possibly like the only that... time I've heard Luhrmann esque as as, as as a good thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, a bit, that's 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 cool. I love strictly I... boring Baz. It's okay. <laughs> uh. But that's what I mean about the MTV generation thing. Mm. Is it feels like silent cinema continued, and he came up through the MTV generation as now. Yeah, it's this very, very odd, mm. uh, incongruous mm. mix that, that produces something wonderful. Mm. And I look, I, I got to say, his next feature, um, uh, which is Dracula: Pages from a Virgin's Diary in two thousand and two, is one of my favourites. Uh. It's one of the best Dracula adaptations I've ever seen, simply because it has a new take on it. Yes, and it's, well, see, it's, mm. it's not so much a new take; it's it's more like the, the the closest take to the book you could almost get. Because there are three things that kill me about this film: mm. it's the way it's shot. It completely demolishes what you expect from a dance film because this is a, he's essentially yeah. recording a ballet. Yeah, that, yeah. That, and that's what it kind of felt to me like mm. it's, he's done it on spec. Yeah, the, exactly. He, yeah. he essentially has, but the way he does it is just like you sit there just going, "I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah. I didn't know that you were allowed to do that." There's a lot of that know? in there. Yeah, and 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 the the second thing is you know how close it actually is to Bram Stoker's original text. Like mm-hmm. it is so faithful. It is. And you you don't realise that until you kind of all of a sudden have this realisation that, oh, you know, what we what we popularly, you know, perceive of as the Dracula story, so much is left out, Mm. you know, and we just tend to retell the same aspects over and over again. I mean, this this story does leave stuff out as well, but it's so, because it focuses on, Mm. you know, an aspect that is so rarely, Mm. like Mina Harker's. Yeah, yeah. and I feel like. There's um, a lot of Lucy at the start as well, like Bram Stoker's Dracula, actually, like, um. The Coppola, Coppola, right? Yeah. Same thing. This whole focus on Lucy mm. Westenra that nobody really shows. No one really goes into. But the third thing that really gets me, and it's kind of similar to how he deals with with gender roles in film, mm. and it's how he deals with race. Because Dracula mm. in this film is played by a Chinese Canadian dancer named Zhang Wei Shang. He looks stunning. He's he's beautiful. His face uh, is chiselled out of a piece of yeah. marble. Chiselled, and he is just yes, it's excellent. And um, the film actually consciously is always invoking paranoia and fear of the racial other. You know, Mm. there's intertitles such as others, exclamation mark, immigrants, exclamation mark, from the east, exclamation mark. It's not a Madden film unless you've abused several thousand exclamation marks. Yes, we've not mentioned his Uh, love of of hyperbolic intertitles. Oh, he just loves it. It's brilliant. Um, Yeah, and so it really pulls out this, this aspect of the novel that is completely absent or downplayed by most other adaptations and I, I would expand this this kind of reading to also include uh, his next film Cowards Bend the Knee mm. and the representation of the character Meta who is you know presented as this kind of 1920s style dragon lady which is you know considered a very negative racial stereotype mm. these days and how Madden like he subtly critiques silent and classical cinema's representations of race by highlighting how racist we find these depictions now and kind of deliberately twisting the audience to make them feel uncomfortable and Mm. kind of go, Oh, I I really want to interrogate why he's decided to, to depict things this way. And it makes you uncomfortable, Mm. you know, knowing what we know now about, you know, the, the, the history of, you know, race in Hollywood cinema in particular. Yeah. 
I yeah, I, that is fascinating the way he um he's sort of reappropriating a lot of these um, ancient tropes. Mm. I think Coward's been the knee is a point. It starts off this streak of his mm. films that I just adore. Mm. Yeah. It's I like him when he's black and white, frenetic and funny as hell. Yeah. And just so incredibly and I know this word often gets overused, but random. Yeah. Like yeah, there's right. something about like, Coward's Bend the Knee has to be one of the most random films I've ever seen in my life. Like, I, I explained the plot to my partner well, after I watched it. I was trying, it's like, I just sounded like a mad person. It's like, he's got, he's obsessed with a father and he has his hands cut off and he sews the hands on her new husband because she doesn't want to be touched by hands around her father's. Mm. And then there's this hockey, these frozen, these hockey waxworks are actually dead hockey players. Because the question was, what does the title mean? It's like, well, you only find that out at the end. You do. And then you've got to yeah. go on this journey. And, and one of the characters, in, like in so many of his films, named Guy Madden. Yes. Yeah, yes. why does well, he do well, that? Well, this is actually the first in his, what he calls, the me trilogy, which ah. is Cowards Bend the Knee, um, Brand Upon the Brain, yes. and My Winnipeg, which are essentially, they're, they're films that he says are inspired from his own life, or at least, if not from his own life, from his own subconscious. He <laughs> yeah, is, yeah, he's, he's, he's a director who, like, he said this in interviews, that's quite extraordinary, he is very, very aware of his own conscious and subconscious biases, and mm. it seems like he's always attempting to either depict them or poke them apart or tease them out and try and get to some kind of understanding of why these are the things that he keeps coming back mm. to because he keeps coming back to stories about mothers yeah. and incest and and amnesia and you know um uh, personal failure often in Winnipeg. There's a lot of failures as husbands and fathers as lots well. Lots of failures as husbands and fathers, as as lovers, mm. and you know, I feel like that's a very good segue into the saddest music in the world, which yeah. is, is just possibly the most beautiful monument to failure that's, yes. that, that's ever been made. Also, the world's we- uh, possibly the world's weirdest appropriation of the Eurovision Song Contest. I yes, know. yes, of course, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 25,000 depression euro dollars, you know. Can, can I say something yeah. really, this is really odd given the style of all of his work this mm. felt to me like it shared a universe with archangel <gasps> kind right. of. Does yeah that, that doesn't sound that. crazy no that doesn't okay, sound good. crazy i can see that yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh, uh, even though all of his films feel like they only exist in a guy madden universe yeah. within that universe <laughs> is a is a, a mini universe that, that these two films exist in but yeah saddest music is is incredible and it has is, and it's one the one of his films i i like there oh, well, a couple of his films get quite point but this is the film that has the real kick in the teeth at the end of the it movie it really does like you do feel a real sense it's of it's just one of those films loss. that it's you know it's I, I feel like it's the one that's the it's initially the easiest to get into yes. it's initially the most straightforward like it has a very straightforward mm. plot when you when you know compare it to other maddens you know it's the one with recognizable stars mm. you know you've got isabella rossellini mm-hmm. and mark mckinney and so you know it's it's easy to get into but then it's the one that also just has the biggest heapings of melodrama and it's got the biggest fall mm. like 
it's waiting with a glass shard from a broken set of legs to pierce your heart, like <laughs> right at that end. Nice, and, nice. And, and it, it, it's probably it's probably my favourite of his. It's the yeah. one that I just keep coming back to yeah. again and again, and just I'm I'm in tears by the end of it every single yeah, time. Yeah, it is. And, and that's the thing. I think most of his films, he kind of softens it. Some it, they're just so mm. weird, weird and random that mm. you know any sadness is there. It's present. It's throughout, mm. but it's usually diffused by all the other stuff. This is the film that really distills it and just yeah. goes. It's 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 just like, it's, it's yeah. just going for you. It's it's a jugular film. Yeah, but that, also really funny and bizarre. So as funny, well. and I feel like it's 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 the perfect encapsulation of what he is as a filmmaker in in a lot of ways. And then the, yeah, the autobiographical mm. thing continues with yeah, brand upon the brain, mm. which we were just talking about, and my Winnipeg. Oh, okay. uh, Winnipeg is my favorite of his films. Uh, it's, it's a lot of people's favorites. Pretty extraordinary. <laughs> it's so amazing. It's it's you know a documentary about his life and about Winnipeg that mm. clearly mixes truth and fiction, but it's illuminating whether or not he's lying or telling the truth. You know, it it, it still shows you something about him and I, mm. I yeah, I love and, the fact yeah. that his facts and his lies are both important. Yeah. Yeah, and the Winnipegian mythology and so focused on hockey and <laughs> hockey and being cold and and you know being stuck in the middle of the prairies with nothing else around. I find it really um quite hilarious that apparently he was told by the film's producer, "Don't give me the frozen hellhole that everyone knows that Winnipeg is <laughs> when they're making the film." So it really has this kind of bizarre duality where like the the entire film is hinged on you know the the guy Madden character is essentially making this film in order to finally get away from Winnipeg. Yeah, but he just keeps being pulled back in through all of these various little stories and his own family because of course he has actors portraying his entire family yeah, in yeah. it as well. It's also like the weirdness being screamed at you by a hyperbolic silent film intertitle voice. Something about yes. that is hilarious. Exactly. And, and normally title intertitles are so austere mm-hmm. and so yeah. and then you've got his doing <laughs> screaming at yeah. you. Yeah and, and Madden does do the narration for that film <laughs> himself. Yeah. 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 But Brand Upon the Brain is also extraordinary. <gasps> it also is also autobiographical too. Isn't also it? Yeah. autobiographical in, in in a way in in things. His mother I probably think. wasn't drinking the the nectar, aka the out blood of... life force, out of orphans. Yeah, no. Oh, let's not rule anything out. <laughs> let's not rule anything out. But <laughs> to be yeah, known. I almost feel like even more than Dracula, it is his most pure horror film because yeah, there right. there are just things in this. Uh, there is the drinking the nectar out of the orphans' heads. There is the fact that his father becomes a zombie, reanimated yeah. by his mother. And um, and and his mother is like this demonic presence mm. who just sits above everyone in this lighthouse, you know, observing all and being yeah. able to be heard from everywhere. And it it really is horrifying and claustrophobic mm. in so many ways. And yes, how do you feel about your mother, guy? <laughs> <laughs> His most recent feature, 2011's Keyhole, doesn't have a great reputation, but I kind of loved it. Like, it's it's this weird adaptation of Odysseus a bit, but sort of with ghosts in a single house. You know, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's typical yeah. Madden and yeah. it's very weird, but yeah, I kind of loved it. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoy it. Like, I definitely see how people don't react to it in the way mm. that, they have his other films because it's essentially Madden doing a film noir, you yeah. know, like you've got all these gangsters in a house and, but it's all tied up with, you know, Madden-esque tropes of children who don't remember who their parents are and parents who don't remember who their, <laughs> you know, children are, you know, husbands who don't remember their wives. And yeah. I tend not to like to use the word surreal with his work because mm-hmm. I kind of feel like it doesn't quite 
hit the nail on the head. Mm. But this is definitely the film where he's almost trying to be enormously obfuscating. Like, you know, he's he's trying to trip up the audience. He's mm. trying to make you think that particular outcomes are going to happen and they don't. And then, you know, the narrative just wildly veers, veers off and starts doing other things. And mm. yeah, I think it's it, it's definitely his most, um, I, I don't like to say inaccessible, but you, you definitely need to have watched a bit of him before launching into mm. that one, I think. Yeah. It's the most difficult. Yes, film. yes, you know, but still enjoyable. I yeah. still encourage everyone to watch it. Yeah. Well, just for the style, like I mean, mm. I just find this film so mesmerising to look at. Yeah. Mm. Again, it's that question. It's like, how are you doing this? What are you doing here? There's so many. There's levels. There's things being repeated. There's just sometimes there's just hilarious motifs being repeated. Mm. Yeah. Like there's some there's bits in Brand Upon the Brain where it's like these people having this conversation. And there's just this shuddering catatonic kid being shown every three shots. Mm. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's just weirdly incongruous, but totally appropriate and yeah it's exactly. fascinating i think why 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 i enjoy him so much is the fact that i i really respond to filmmakers who create a cohesive world within their films and it's like every film is like coming back to a space that you feel if not safe in you feel comfortable in yeah. mm. and like Wes Anderson's kind of the same for me um you know any sort of filmmaker where you know it's it's a consistent style it's a consistent mm. vision mm. it and they you know they may be dealing with the same ideas and tropes and themes over and over again but they find new ways to to explore that and make that interesting for you while also there's I don't know there's a, I find a sense of comfort in Madden's films. Mm. That's lovely. I like, mm. I like that a lot. And I loved re-watching these and discovering <laughs> ones I hadn't seen. Hayley, thank you so much for joining us. Ah, oh, such a pleasure. I, I love the excuse to watch all, all, you know, all of Madden's films again in order to share them with everyone else. You all have to go out and buy them and watch them now, guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching from an omnipotent lighthouse. <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> love it. Awesome. Thank you so much. And we'll see the rest of you next month. You remember Robert Mitchum and Thunder Road? I'm going to powder his face.